I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. It's a vantage point rarely adopted by European historians. The experiences of thousands of indigenous people from what we now call North and South America, crossing from West to East across the Atlantic. Sometimes voluntarily, more commonly against their will and in conditions of severe violence, fighting for freedom and survival on European shores in the 1500s. One theme that keeps coming up over and over again is surprise and disgust at the inequalities they see in Europe. They weren't used to seeing extreme poverty alongside extreme wealth. The stories of these encounters on European soil can be found throughout the historical record. But they're almost entirely ignored in Europe's own narrative of its past. The more I worked on it, the more I realized that there are Indigenous people, thousands of Indigenous people traveling to Europe whose stories just people do not know about. Of course, descendant communities know about these things, and there has been scholarly work on quite a number of these travellers. But for some reason, that work hasn't made a dent on popular understandings of this period of history. Caroline dodds Pennock teaches international history at the University of Sheffield in the UK. What I work on is Indigenous, particularly Aztec Mexica histories, and more recently their travels to Europe in the 16th and early 17th century. Her book is titled On Savage Shores, How Indigenous Americans Discovered Europe. Take us back to 1493. The first Indigenous islanders are setting foot on European soil. Who were they? These are a group of Lucayan Taino people who Christopher Columbus has kidnapped on his first voyage, arrives, of course, in the Caribbean in 1492, and he immediately sets about kidnapping indigenous Taino people, or what we now call Taino people, to bring to Europe. We think maybe about 12 or so survive the voyage because quite a lot of them die on the voyage. We know very little about them except that there are men, women and children who set out, though we don't know if any children survive the voyage. And we know of just one family where uh, Columbus has kidnapped the wife and the son and two daughters and the man rows out to the boat and begs to be allowed on board so that he can travel with his family. And that group is the one identifiable group that we know are amongst the people who set out. Whether they arrive, survive the voyage, we don't know. And to what end were they kidnapped? Columbus talks an awful lot about enslaving people. He thinks they will be very suitable for slavery, he says, from the very beginning. He also wants translators, mm -hmm. go-betweens, people who can help him communicate with this new culture, and also to show off 
this society. There's also a, a hint that some of them may have travelled voluntarily. It's a little bit difficult to tell, but some sources from the 18th century suggest that some of them are high-status figures who voluntarily go as ambassadors of the rulers of the uh, Hispaniola, Guacanagari. Some of his relatives, it seems, were on these early voyages and are among the first to survive and be baptised. Mm-hmm. What can you say about the kind of reception they would have had? What was awaiting them and and what did they make of it? It's very hard to tell exactly what they made of it because we don't have their voices recorded. What we know is that they land in April 1493 at Palos on the coast and about six or seven are selected to be taken to see the king and queen, Ferdinand and Isabella. And they create a great sensation. People are amazed by them, by these new people. There must have been a lot of people peering at them, very curious. And they travel via Seville to Barcelona, where they're presented to the king and queen in the cathedral. And it must have been a really overwhelming experience, because first Columbus presents all this treasure, much of which is actually gifts from Taino rulers, uh, including some of these amazing what are called guaizas, which are faces of the living is the translation. They're little masks which denote kinship, alliance, relationships. And so they, they say something really interesting about what the indigenous rulers think is going to happen, that these are gifted. So anyway, all this treasure is gifted to the rulers. And then when the indigenous people are brought forward, these six or seven Tainos, Ferdinand and Isabella fall at their feet weeping. Mm. And the choir burst into song, which must have been quite a remarkable (laughs) experience. We don't know what on earth they thought was going on. Um, They then are baptised, one as Fernando or Ferdinand of Aragon after the king and one as uh, Juan de Castile, John of Castile after his son. Those are the high status men. And also one as Diego Colón, Columbus after Mm -hmm. Columbus, who becomes his translator, actually. Yeah. What would have been sort of the sum total of knowledge in Europe at the time about Indigenous people prior to this contact? Well, absolutely nothing about the Indigenous people of the Americas so far as we know, though there is the possibility that there were earlier isolated voyages. There are some medieval records that suggest maybe some people were shipwrecked in Europe. But essentially, Columbus, as we know from the fact he called these people Indians, thought he had arrived in India. So Indigenous people in this period are often seen through the lens of other kinds of non-Christian peoples. People believe either that they're going to be perfect converts or that they're pagans or heretics, uh, or in some cases that this might be a a Garden of Eden where they can create a new primitive church, as they call it. So it's a a very little knowledge. So these indigenous people are part of creating the understandings of their societies from the very beginning. We often see it as a purely European encounter, something that happens amongst intellectuals in Europe and travellers. But actually, indigenous people are travelling to Europe and being part of this discussion of this creation of knowledge right from the start. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm intrigued by the, your quick mention of, of the possibility of a shipwreck that might have preceded all of this. Can you tell us what you know about that? 
I don't know very much about it, mm. I have to be honest. Uh, that is not what I have specialised in, but there are several slightly earlier records that talk of shipwrecks of dark-skinned men, men with uh, what may have been tattoos, uh, and some people have argued that these are the very earliest records of Indigenous Americans. Mm. It also seems very likely that Basque fishermen, people on the coast of France, may have known about the cod banks off Newfoundland long before Columbus travels, because they may well be going further afield Mm -hmm. but some of my colleagues have argued that they would have kept that knowledge to themselves because of course they don't want anyone else finding these rich fishing grounds so back to the uh, back to the six or seven who did actually uh, make it in, in 1493 one of the captives was baptized as Juan and he and he stayed in Spain how come He does stay in Spain. According to the sources, um, John of Castile, the son of um, Ferdinand, the source says he wanted him for himself. This seems to be a high status man, one of the relatives of Guacanagueri, and he is kept at court, according to Oviedo, uh, who's a chronicler of the period. And Oviedo meets him some two years after he's arrived in Spain and he's living as a nobleman, dressing as a Spanish nobleman and also speaking Spanish fluently. But then he dies uh, just two years after his arrival in Spain. We don't know what he died of, Mm. but this is not unusual. Indigenous people in Europe, just like Indigenous people in the Americas, often succumb to the many germs that they don't have any immunity to in this early period. Right. Did any of those travellers who first arrived in 1493, did any of them actually return home at any point? Yes, it seems that the majority of those that had survived are taken home. Diego Colón, who uh, is a young man and is baptised for Columbus, becomes something of a son to him. That's how it's written in the sources. But of course, like in many of these cases, the reality of consent is very obscure. We don't know exactly how much he's agreeing to this. But it seems like he makes the best of his situation and he travels back and forth across the Atlantic multiple times, supporting Columbus, working for him, acting as a translator. And eventually he settles back in the Americas, starts a family and takes advantage of his close association with the colonizers to promote himself through the ranks, as it were. How extensive was the practice of capturing and and moving indigenous people to Europe in the century after Columbus landed there? It was extremely extensive. We know from the work of uh, Andres Resendez, his wonderful book, The Other Slavery, that indigenous enslavement is very widespread. The majority of people who are enslaved are not shipped across the Atlantic, but it seems that the numbers are in the tens of thousands in the first hundred years. So, for example, Amerigo Vespucci in 1499 travels with a, a man called Ojeda, he's the captain, and they take 222 slaves, as he calls it. 222 slaves is the quote from the Bahamas, who are and these enslaved people, those that survive, are sold in Cadiz in Spain. The Portuguese enslave many, many people. Each captain is entitled to bring a certain number of enslaved people just as a kind of bonus, along with every cargo they bring without taxation. 
The difficulty is that because indigenous enslavement is illegal, except under certain circumstances, especially after 1542, when all of the loopholes are theoretically closed, these people are often not recorded very clearly. So it's hard for us to get good figures. We have an awful lot of enslaved people who are recorded in these first few years. So Columbus, perhaps 3,000 people he ships to Europe, just Columbus wow. alone. But then you also have lots of other people who are coming and instead of calling them Indios, which is the term for indigenous people in the records, Indians, they call them brown people, mm -hmm. for example, loro. And that's to get round the laws around indigenous enslavement. Yeah. You're speaking about a period, you know, that basically this, the 16th century. I just wonder if you could just imagine with us what it is, what kind of world it would have been that indigenous people would have been discovering on what you describe in your title as a savage shores. Of course, the experience would have varied tremendously depending on who you were. So for people from, for example, the coast of North Carolina who in the late 1500s come. Uh, they're from the Algonquian-speaking people, and they're from the generation after the first great dying, so they're used to quite uh, small communities. They would come to places like London, where the population is pushing 200,000, and it must have been an absolutely astonishing, noisy, stone forest for them. Mm -hmm. uh, for people who come from Mexico, they're used to urban settlements, for example. They have big cities. Tenochtitlan is perhaps bigger than any city in Europe. The Aztec Mexica capital is perhaps bigger than any city in Europe at that yes. time, certainly bigger than any city in Spain. So there would have been a rather different encounter for them. Mm -hmm. What we do know, though, is in terms of their sense of the culture, one theme that keeps coming up over and over again is surprise and disgust at the inequalities they see in Europe. Now, that's not to idealise indigenous societies as a kind of perfect utopia, but they weren't used to seeing extreme poverty alongside extreme wealth. There are very few indigenous communities where there isn't some form of communalistic help. Even the Aztec Mexica, who have extreme differences of hierarchy, mm -hmm. people at the bottom are supported with things like communal grain stores. So... You see, for example, Michel de Montaigne, he writes a famous essay called On the Cannibals. And he met these indigenous people in uh, Rouen. And he says that they say, why aren't people burning down these palaces? There's these people with all this money. And then outside of them, people in, the, in great poverty, why on earth aren't they burning down the palaces and taking something we don't understand? Mm -hmm. And you see this kind of idea come up again and again, in, including in, in much later sources, even travellers in the 18th and 19th century who write their own accounts of voyages remark on the inequalities. They say, if we were in charge here, these people would have homes, they would have food. It's it's really a, a theme that comes up repeatedly. Maybe just a, a word on the, the essay by Montagna and the inaccuracies contained were therein. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yes. What was it titled again? It's called On the Cannibals. Right. Which is obviously an incorrect description. Of course, yes. an incorrect description. Mm -hmm. And the irony is that Montaigne, of course, is using the indigenous people to critique Europe. Mm -hmm. it's, it is a piece of rhetoric which is intended to shed light on the inequalities and violences of European society by saying, well, why on earth are we criticising them? Look at our own culture. Yeah. 
so it's very much a piece of rhetoric. But it, what's interesting for me is that the words he puts into the mouths of the people he meets do sit quite interestingly alongside other accounts. They're not out of line with other indigenous people's accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, Jean Delery uh, says he meets an older man in Brazil who he talks to about uh, why they're shipping Brazil would to Europe. And the man says, why are you doing this? Don't you have enough of your own? And he Mm. says, well, we do, but we want to sell it so our descendants have money. And the man is completely baffled by the idea that you might take something from from one person to create excess wealth. Mm -hmm. He's got no interest, no value for that. Is there any sense in which there was an, an intellectual exchange between indigenous people or travelers and, and intellectuals or people like Montaigne? I think very much so, but it is hard to see in the records. We know that indigenous people are co-creating knowledge in the Americas. We see it in their own words and we see it in the words of Europeans. But it's very rare that you actually get to see those voices in their own words, in the records. There is an exception that I can think of, though, which is uh, the work of a man called Manteo. So in 1584, uh, two men from the coast of North Carolina, from Croatan and Roanoke, called Manteo and Wanchese, Mm -hmm. are brought to London. And the traditional story goes that they meet a man called Thomas Harriet, who teaches them English, and he then creates uh, the first alphabet from an Algonquin language. It's Osamokamuk, in fact. The reality is that it seems that he and Manteo collaborated really closely on the creation of this document. In the archives of Westminster School is the alphabet itself. It's really an orthography rather than alphabet, but that's what it's often called, the the, um, Algonquin alphabet. And at the bottom is a signature that Cole Thrush, a wonderful scholar of indigenous histories in Canada, he has an amazing book called Indigenous London, which goes into some of these stories. He deciphered at the bottom of that text, it says, Matteo Royden, King Matteo did this. And it is Matteo's own handwriting recording his contribution to that Algonquian alphabet, which is just for me this incredible moment of of touching that collaboration. Mm, And very rare one, I imagine. A very rare one. Yeah. So the people who were captured and taken to Europe, what kind of work did they engage in? Typically, at this time, indigenous people in Europe, much like enslaved Africans and other people in Europe, are working either in domestic settings or in fields on farms. It isn't the plantation slavery that we imagine from the Caribbean later. It is a more domestic setting. I mean, that has its own horrors, of course, uh, in terms of your vulnerability to your enslaver, especially for women and children. And what's interesting is that unlike the African trade, typically it is women and younger children who are favoured for enslavement in Europe. Would there have been any kind of legal recourse for indigenous people in Europe after arriving there? Absolutely. That is the fascinating thing. One of the amazing sources that we have for indigenous people's voices is actually the records of freedom suits as they appeal to try and gain freedom from enslavement. Because, as I mentioned, theoretically at least, the slavery of indigenous people is illegal. Before 1542, there are three justifications. You either have to be a cannibal or declared a cannibal. You have to have been captured in just war, as they call it, or rescued from a worse fate. Hmm. Typically, that is uh, being rescued from being enslaved to someone else or 
so because it's obviously much worse to be enslaved to a non-Christian than a Christian or uh, being rescued from being a sacrificial victim. So you get these triumphalist rescue narratives. And then after 1542, it's completely illegal to enslave indigenous people in theory, as I say, at least. So we have lots of wonderful records, wonderful from the point of view of the historian, yes. where we actually get indigenous people's own testimonies about what happened to them as they try and gain freedom from their enslavers. So there's one example that comes to mind where uh, a young man called Martin appeals for freedom from actually quite a famous figure in Mexican history called Gonzalo de Salazar. Martin is from Tenayucan, and it seems that Salazar, who's this brutal uh, administrator and conquistador, he comes to Tenayucan and says to the community, is there a young man here who, who could be my page? And the community uh, agreed to send Martin, who believes he's going as a free servant with Salazar. But the moment that he becomes his servant, he is branded on the face, mm. which must have been this extreme personal violation for him. Martin has this really fascinating life, according to his own testimonies. He's a translator for Cortes for a while. But then when Salazar is exiled to Spain for his awful behavior, Martin goes with him. And Martin works in quite a few different places in Segovia, Seville, Granada, before he decides to appeal for his freedom when Salazar tries to make him return to his household. The records of the suit, which just give us so much of what it must have been like to be an enslaved person the moment he appeals for his freedom in 1536. Salazar, according to the records, grabs him, bangs his head into a wall, and according to Martin, he would have killed me if not I was saved by some bystanders. The court take him out of Salazar's hands while the court case proceeds. Sadly, a lot of people aren't given that opportunity. And there's an awful lot of back and forth, but it, eventually in 1537, he is declared a free man. And then and what he happens return, He returns to Mexico. The Crown mm. pay for any indigenous enslaved person who wishes to to return to their homeland. And so he goes back to Mexico, paid for by the crown. What an incredible story. Is there any sense in which, you know, that, that it was actually widespread, the knowledge of their status in Europe among indigenous people? Absolutely, because we have hundreds yeah. of records of people attempting to gain their freedom, often and the crown, I mean, we don't want to valorise the crown, but they do seem to take quite seriously their responsibility to free indigenous people. They appoint an investigator, uh, a man called Gregorio Lopez, to go round and check whether indigenous people are being held legally. Now, if you're not from a Spanish territory, so if you're from Brazil, a Portuguese territory, well, then you're out of luck. You, you can be enslaved. That's not their problem in their mind. But if you can prove that you were from... Spanish territories and that you shouldn't be held. So Martin is appealing in 1536, even before what are called the new laws of 1542, but he proves that he must have been a boy when he was enslaved and that was illegal. So he gains his freedom. And we see more and more indigenous people appealing and gaining their freedom in the middle part of the 16th century. So it's quite clear that, that the knowledge is spreading and the Crown are uh, doing their best to officially spread that information as well. So on that point, the, the knowledge spreading, how much do we know about how connected Indigenous people were to each other in Europe? 
Well, in Spain and Portugal, there are very much communities. And we know this because indigenous people appear repeatedly in court cases on each other's behalves. So in mm. Martin's court case, a young man appears who he says he knew in Mexico. He knew him as a boy and now still is in contact with him in Spain. We have people who are family groups who appeal for freedom together, along with other people they've traveled with. And when they asked someone in a court case, do you know any people of the Indies? He said, yes, I know lots of people uh, who are from both Spain and the Indies. So they seem to, meaning, you know, from both places. It seems that at least in areas connected to Seville and the transatlantic networks, there are quite recognisable communities of people. So maybe 12 or 15 people in one village alone that is about half an hour to an hour away from Seville. There are these relatively connected networks. Mm -hmm. And beyond legal recourse, would they have had any other means of trying to escape the predicament that they found themselves in? We do see people running away. The mm. records show people simply fleeing. One young man who tries to reach the French border, for example, and is captured and brought back as an enslaved person. He's not prepared to wait for legal recourse. The mm -hmm. problem we have is that people who simply run away frequently don't appear in the records. So we have no good way of knowing how many of those people there are. Because if you successfully run away, it simply isn't recorded. We don't have an equivalent of in the 18th century, for example, you have these advertisements for escaped yes. enslaved people in London. Um, we just don't have an equivalent of that. Yeah. Other indigenous people do make the best of their situation such as it is, and they marry Europeans or they work as go-betweens for Europeans and gain status in that way. Mm -hmm. There are also, of course, some very high-status travellers in Europe who are there as diplomats or representatives of their people, and they're, of course, treated very differently. You're listening to Ideas. We're a broadcast and a podcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Caroline Dodds-Pennock is a historian at the University of Sheffield in England. The title of her book, On Savage Shores, refers to the harshness of the European experience for thousands of indigenous people from the Americas. Most, though not all, traveled against their will, captured and shipped across the Atlantic, destined to be enslaved on farms or in households throughout Europe. 
I'm sure that there are descendants of people living there. Since the book came out, I've had people emailing me and saying, oh, I had a DNA test a number of years ago and I learned I was part Indigenous. I always wondered where that came from. Wow. Of course, those people have no claim to Indigenous community and identity because it's it's so many generations back. They don't have any connection um, any more than I might to any of my Viking ancestry. Sure. But it is undoubtedly the case that thousands of indigenous people blend into European society and become part of that culture and in some cases remain quite prominent. So the children of Moctezuma continue to assert their identity as indigenous nobility even up into the present day. How is that seen in European society? Well, I think it's not really prominent in people's imagination, but there was Mm. a case Uh, about a decade ago, I think, where they tried to reassert their right to a pension from the Spanish crown. They weren't successful, but uh, when you go to to Spain, you can still see, for example, in Trujillo, where the Inca princess Francisca Pizarro Yupanqui was exiled, you can still see the palace that she built with her husband and her face is engraved on the palace. It's just remarkable how these traces are there when you start looking for them. There are indigenous people buried at at Bristol. Uh, These are Inuit people who are buried at at Bristol in the UK, in England. There's some buried in in London. When you start looking, Mm -hmm. these people really, and their traces, their uh, legacy is very, very present in European society. But but you have to look a bit harder for it, I think, than you maybe do for the legacy of the Black Atlantic, where so many millions of people were transported and it went on for such a long time, that, that horror of the transatlantic slave trade, that, um, you know, their legacy has been much more visible. Yeah. I'm glad you raised um, Francesca Yupenki because I wanted to ask about Indigenous people in Europe who were not enslaved because Mm. there were some who were, you know, it's not everyone's story. Can you talk a little bit more about her case and the kind of life that she led in Europe? Yes, so she is the daughter of a conquistador and an Inca Nusta or princess. Francisca is exiled to Spain in 1551 because there's a fight going on in Peru over who's going to be in charge, essentially. And they want her out of the way because they think that she would be disruptive. And so she's exiled to Trujillo and we have these amazing account records of her voyage. So we know that she did all this shopping for luxuries, that she bought a table, a hat, for the the boat, all the... She travels in enormous luxury. Mm. When she arrives in Spain... Her uncle manages to marry her and she actually lives in a prison with him because he's imprisoned at that time. She has five children, I think it is, of which three survive. And she's part of this small circle of Inca people. We know that her brother also goes with her to Spain. And there are some other relatives of hers who appear in the records in Trujillo. She is eventually freed. Uh, She isn't ever in prison, but when her husband is in prison, she stays with him. This is quite a luxurious prison, I should say. (laughs) And when they're freed, they set about building what's known as the Palace of the Conquest. When people go to Trujillo, they always go and, and they look at the statue of Francisco Pizarro. But just 
just around the corner is this palace that she built with her first husband. After he dies, because like many women in this period, she's much younger than her husband, she remarries and sets about asserting her rights to her inheritance. And she's quite influential. She brings legal case after legal case to try and gain the rewards she believes she's entitled to. She's quite typical of indigenous diplomats, actually, in that period, in that we have record after record of these petitions to the crown. Mm-hmm. So hers was one particular experience of someone with mixed heritage. But well, what about others who are, had more ordinary lineages? Well, how were they received in Spain? There actually are quite a number of mestizo or mixed heritage people who come to Spain. And in actual fact, the crown exempts mestizo children from their prohibitions on indigenous people traveling. They try and stop indigenous people coming. They want them to stay in their own homelands and appeal for things there. They're not very Mm -hmm. successful in prohibiting people. But they exempt mestizo children because they think that if they can convert them and hispanize them, that they will then serve to convert the rest of the population. They see them as um, evangelical ambassadors, essentially. So they're making their way into European society. It can be quite precarious in a way being in 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 that position because even though the for the crown at this time and under the law being christian was what mattered and there weren't so many racial categories in the 16th century what we see in reality is that they are often the subject of prejudice so in 1570 for example a peruvian woman called isabel she comes to spain with like her common law husband essentially but then for some reason when they've been settled quite a while and they have two mixed heritage children lorenzo and gaspar He abruptly marries another woman who is also conveniently called Isabel, which makes telling their story quite complicated. And then he dies all of a sudden. And Isabel, the Spanish woman, tries to claim that the Peruvian Isabel was enslaved and so were her children. Hmm. And they have to fight for freedom. And in that, you see the racism experienced by Lorenzo and Gaspar. Lorenzo, I think it is, was very angry at being called a Moorish dog. So the, presumably his darker skin had led to people being racist against him. They do, in fact, gain their freedom and some compensation. But it's quite a precarious existence. People can try and assert superiority over you, dominance or, or legal ownership based on that heritage, even if they shouldn't really be able to. I wanted to um, switch gears a bit and talk a little more about your motivation and and. What you address in your own introduction to the book, as you point out, you're a white historian mm-hmm. working in Sheffield, England. I wonder what concerns you have with the idea that that indigenous experiences, whether then or now, may not be your story to tell. I was very concerned about that, especially as in the last 10 years or so, I've been privileged to know more Indigenous scholars um, and Indigenous communities, to connect with them virtually to a much greater degree, you know, digitally and as a, as a colleague, um, and to listen to Indigenous peoples, because I I'm, don't take lightly the responsibility of being the person to bring these stories to a wider audience. I've been working on this project for about 15 years. My last book was a long time ago. And it's something that is built up over a very long time and doesn't speak to just one indigenous community. So it has peoples all the way from the Taino in the Caribbean to the Inuit in Nunavut and the Tupi people in Brazil. And so it is a a very 
wide perspective and I'm very aware that I'm putting forward the stories of all kinds of different indigenous communities who may feel very differently about these experiences. And so what I've tried to avoid doing is ventriloquizing for those people wherever I can. I've used their own voices. I've tried to take the opportunity to signpost work by indigenous scholars and just to ask people to listen a little bit harder for indigenous voices today as well as in the past. And of course I can't represent every indigenous point of view there are many people who would disagree with each other i'm sure sure nor do i want to claim that i am speaking for them i'm just doing my best to put forward their voices and their histories and to try and draw people's attention to them where i possibly can yeah and and you've consulted widely it, was that in some sense asking permission to tell those stories or was it something different that's a really good question I haven't specifically sought permission from Indigenous communities, uh, nor have I revealed any privileged knowledge. Everything that I'm talking about pretty much is published elsewhere, so I'm working with written sources. I certainly would not take oral sources and then use them without permission, if that makes sense. Um, I don't know. I... I it's really difficult because how do you ask permission for a book that covers so many different communities? I feel a really enormous responsibility not to misrepresent them, to do my very best to sensitively and accurately and without causing further damage to communities that have been and often still are marginalised and discriminated against um, to tell those histories. And maybe just as a last thing on this, just how surely going into this project, you would have felt the weight of that responsibility and would have known the pitfalls um, sort of going into it. I wonder if you could recall the moment you decided to go ahead anyway and why you did. The the interesting thing about this project is I didn't sort of decide to do it. I kind of fell into it. So I was studying Aztec Mexica people mm -hmm. and I kept wondering why we heard so much about white men traveling west and so little about indigenous people traveling the other way. And so I just sort of started looking for them and, and noting them down whenever I saw them. And there just turned out to be really large numbers of them. And this was originally going to be a specialist book about Mexican and, and Caribbean people traveling to Spain, kind of a scholarly work. And the more I worked on it, the more I realized that there are indigenous people, thousands of indigenous people traveling to Europe whose stories just people do not know about. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not that there is no scholarly awareness. Of course, descendant communities know about these things. And there has been scholarly work on quite a number of these travellers. But for some reason, that work hasn't made a dent on popular understandings of this period of history. People mm -hmm. think they know this period really well. It's the period of the Renaissance and the Reformation of Henry VIII, the Golden Age of Spain. People in Europe think they understand this period. But how many people know that there was a Brazilian king at the court of Henry VIII? I was speaking to a specialist in Henry VIII and she didn't know that. Wow. And so 
the more I worked on it, the more I realized that there was a, a transformative history of Europe to be told here. It's not just about indigenous peoples. It's about helping people in Europe understand the diversity of their past, the origins of so many foods and words and culture and places, you know. And people just didn't recognize that. In Britain, mm-hmm. people often start the story of migration with Windrush, with yes. the Windrush generation in the middle part of the 20th century. But it's a much longer, deeper history. And I feel that the histories of these indigenous people are so important in their own right. It's so important as a project of recovery. But it's also incredibly important for helping people both in Europe and the Americas, recognize these longer, deeper connections that indigenous people are so much part of. Yeah. As you say, uh, an important work of recovery, but also I sense important, particularly in this time, in this age. Absolutely. I, I think for me, this is a, an ethical consideration that it, it's so vital for us to recognize that we are, I mean, how far do you want to go back? We could go back to the Romans or to the Vikings or the Angles and Saxons in Britain to tell a story of migration. But the moment where we start thinking about globalization, about the beginnings of the modern age is 1492 and onwards. And so often indigenous peoples are missing from those stories that we tell of travel, of migration. It's it's so vital, I think, that we recognize that we are all migrants, for want of a better word, our histories, our cultures, things that people think of as inherently European. So imagine Italian cooking without tomatoes. Imagine Asian cooking without chilies or West African cooking without peanuts or chilies. I mean, it's it's (laughs) ridiculous when you think of these things as being so recent. And even when people tell stories of those commodities, the indigenous people who came with them are often cut out of it. So in England, people think of Walter Raleigh as bringing tobacco and potatoes to Britain. But people are eating potatoes and smoking in Europe long before Walter Raleigh crosses the Atlantic. And we know indigenous people are smoking in Europe, that they're bringing these commodities. It's such a, a vital story, I think. If you went to the Tower of London in 1603, you might encounter an indigenous man going by the name of Harry. Yes. Um, but he wasn't a prisoner. What was he doing there? He was a servant of Walter Raleigh. So Walter Raleigh travelled across the Atlantic multiple times, of course. But in 1603, after Elizabeth I, his patron has died, he's been thrown in the tower for uh, suspected um, conspiracy. And it seems that one of the two servants he was permitted to have with him in the tower was an indigenous man from Guyana called Harry. And people think about Walter Raleigh in the Tower writing his history of the world, trying to grow tobacco and sassafras, but they don't think that there is an indigenous man at his side throughout all that time. It's hard to tell how consensual this position is, whether Harry's been kidnapped or whether he's agreed to come. What is fascinating is that later in 1617, when uh, much older Raleigh goes back to Guyana, he inquires for Harry at a place called Kaliana. And Harry at that time, who is a very high status individual, it seems he's a chief of some kind, makes Raleigh wait before he comes. And when he does come, he provides him with incredibly lavish hospitality. So he's showing very much that he's not a servant to Raleigh, that he has status of his own. Now, what little we know suggests that, in fact, he might have had quite a friendly 
relationship with Raleigh, that they may have been quite close. Uh, and Raleigh does ha- have a reputation in history for inspiring great loyalty from the people around him. So it, it's not impossible that they've become quite close friends. But certainly there's an amazing transatlantic connection and relationship there and just something people don't think of, that ubiquity of Indigenous people in mm-hmm. these famous stories. But is there, I mean, you've sort of alluded to this, but is there any sense in which that Harry actually wanted to be working for Walter? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know because yeah. we know that he has two Indigenous servants. Harry is just one of two. Mm-hmm. It seems they were brought from a previous expedition. But we have so many of these words in the sources, words like brought and taken, that mm-hmm. just don't tell us whether those people had consented to come. There are some cases, the Brazilian king at the court of Henry VIII seems to have consented very much so because they leave a, 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 um, a as a ransom for his safe return, they leave one of their company at uh, the in the Brazilian king's homeland. Now, actually, the king dies on the return voyage, but his community are persuaded of the good dealing of the English and Mm. let him go. But there are some cases where people have quite clearly consented. But so often I'm dealing with sources that simply use words like brought or taken. And we cannot tell whether these people are effectively enslaved or coerced or whether they've chosen to travel. There are some who, who quite clearly are choosing to travel. Cortes brings an enormous group with him in 1528 when he returns for the first time after he's defeated the Aztec Mexica. He brings a big group of people and a lot of those are nobles. Mm -hmm. And one of them even just goes to Rome to see the Pope, as far as you can tell. Um, It's just a sort of a man called Benito Matatlaqueni is just a kind of sightseer as far as in Rome. But then there are also musicians and dancers who are sent to Rome to entertain the Pope. And how consensual is that? We don't know. So there's all these different layers of presence and you have to be so alert to that all the time that even people who appear to be um, of reasonably high status or quite important in European society may not have chosen to make the voyage. Yes. So given that, what limits do you set for yourself when you're trying to recover a story of someone like Harry? Well, I find as, as much as I possibly can and... I think it is important to speculate, but to be very, very careful about flagging where you are speculating. Mm. So I know other colleagues who've taken different approaches to this. So I was reading a wonderful history book by a friend and and they've said, well, I'm going to try and avoid using too many words like perhaps or maybe or possibly. But that was a history of European migration, of European uh, colonization. For me, I think... It's not my right to obscure that speculation, to to show where I'm making a conceptual leap where I'm saying this seems probable or this seems likely. It's not for me to ventriloquize Mm -hmm. those people. Mm -hmm. So I give as much information as I possibly can. I use indigenous sources where I possibly can. And I make clear to my reader what we can and and can't know. And invite them to just to think harder to look beyond the simple explanation. Yeah. Could you tell us the story of the Inuit, I guess, family, for lack of a better description, although it wasn't quite a family, was it? No. Can you just go back and and tell us a little bit about those three individuals who came from what would later become known as Canada? Yes. In 
in the 1570s, uh, an English explorer called Martin Frobisher has been travelling to what became Nunavut. And in 1576, he takes an Inuk man to London who creates a great sensation um, but dies of an injury he's incurred in his capture after just two weeks. The following year, Frobisher returns to Nunavut in an attempt to explore further, to find some crew members he thinks he's lost. And while he's there, he captures three indigenous Inuit people. They're known to us as Kalicho, Arnak and Nutak, but Arnak and Nutak just mean woman and child. Mm. Nutak is Arnak's baby. Kalicho is an unrelated man, but it seems that the Europeans think, the English think that by putting them together, it will create a sort of family. But actually, fascinatingly, the records of the English say that they're very careful around each other, incredibly supportive, but they never show each other their private parts, things like that. They're very polite around each other. And they are all brought to England. They arrive in 1577 and they create a great sensation at Bristol on the coast. So Calicho, the man, uh, harpoons ducks in order to show his skill with the spear uh, for harpooning seals. And it's this wonderful little vignette, but behind that sort of um, jolly almost image is really a very dark reality which is that it seems he's been very badly injured during his capture and he dies only a couple of weeks after arriving in England. A man called Dodding does an autopsy which he treats him during his illness and, th and then does an autopsy and we have the record of this autopsy mm. and it shows that Calicho had some kind of brain injury which explains why he had so many headaches and also has at least two broken ribs uh, incurred in his capture it seems Wow. now Dodding forces Arnak to witness the burial of the dismembered corpse of Calicho which is just horrendous uh, because he thinks that will reassure her that the English aren't cannibals and she's very passive during all of this. And uh, Dodding puts this down to her being either very brave or, or having absolutely no emotions. It seems much more likely she's traumatised and shocked by what has happened. And she herself is sick, probably with measles, and she dies soon afterwards. And, and both Calicho and Arnak are buried at a church called St Stephen's in Bristol. They are recorded in the parish register, their names mm. and burial. Nutak, who is a, probably a toddler by this time, 14 or 15 months, he is left in the very um, dubious care of the Cathay Company and they bring him to London and put him on show at a pub called the Three Swans. Nutak... And he's, a, he's about 15, About 14, months. 15 months, we yeah. think. Um, and he dies after only eight days in the capital and is buried at St. Olav's, coincidentally enough, alongside the Inuk man who had been brought in 1576. So there are two Inuk people who are unrecorded in the parish registers, buried in the grounds of St. Olav's in London. And what's most remarkable about them, one of the reasons this... St it's this. I think of all the histories in the book, this is the one that stuck with the, me the most, is this story of this small child, Nutak, being taken to London, not speaking the language, not knowing what's happening, almost certainly, brought by a wet nurse and, uh, to a busy pub. But beyond that, we actually have a picture of Nutak. John White, who is so famous for his pictures of the coastal indigenous peoples of North America, painted Calicho, Arnak and Nutak 
in England from life. And there's this amazing picture of Arnak and with her hood up, she's got her Parker hood up. And if you look carefully, you can see Nutak's little face peeping out from her Parker. Mm. And it just speaks across the centuries so dramatically to be able to see his face and to be aware that he's buried in a churchyard in London that people just walk past every day and have no idea that he's there. It's a horrific story. It is absolutely horrific and just so unbelievably tragic. Any sense at all uh, of how much of that story is known in among Inuit people in Canada? Have, did you follow that trail at all? There is a, a book of um, testimonies, oral testimonies that were collected of Indigenous people, and they do talk about the arrival of the Europeans and what happened to them. They spoke to elders, including Anuki Adami, who was a, a respected elder, about the arrival of those Europeans and those early histories. And they're certainly aware of the Frobisher voyages. They're not very impressed with European clothes, for example. They mm-hmm. think they might as well have been wearing rags. They're so cold. And But there's very little uh, about the, the travellers themselves. Yeah. I wondered if you could just once again speak about your approach to dealing with with the so much out there that we just don't know in writing not just the story of indigenous people in Europe but in writing history books in general there is so much in history that we don't know and this book is so vast it takes me so far beyond the ability to specialize in one story and so often we these people appear in the sources for a moment and then disappear again And it may be that if I spent my entire career searching in the Mexican records that I would find a few more fragments regarding these travellers. But so much of their lives is inevitably unrecorded because often they are um, illiterate or are literate in other forms of recording, ones that have not come down the centuries to us. And so it feels like putting together a a mosaic almost of of tiny pieces that you try and put together into something coherent where you can't hear one person's voice. You perhaps find the the story of someone slightly later uh, who seems to have had a similar experience where you, you, you can shed some possible light and you're very careful always to say possibly. And by putting together all of these fragments, I hope that it creates a picture that this is a history that is so much bigger and more pervasive than people recognise it to be. This isn't, as is so often the case in telling these stories, uh, these people aren't an exception. It's not just someone who's a curiosity or is uh, unusual. These people are ubiquitous. So very often when people tell the story, for example, of Cortez, who comes with his big entourage in 1528, people say, oh, this is a remarkable, dramatic, unusual event. But actually, there are indigenous ambassadors at court all the time. They're there year on year on year. There are indigenous travelers, indigenous enslaved people, go-betweens, children, Traveling backwards and forwards, if you look at, we've talked mostly about Spain, but if you look at northern France, the records around the coast in northern France where they have all these connections to the Brazilwood trade show indigenous people being baptized very, very early in the 1500s. You have regular connections that include indigenous people as sailors, as family members, as workers, sometimes as incredible curiosities from very, very early on. And, and that's what I want to try and do in the book is to give that sense that these people are 
not exceptions, that they are part of European society from the very beginning and that they are transformative of it. Caroline, thank you so much for your insights. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. On Ideas, you heard Caroline Dodds-Pennock. Her book is On Savage Shores, How Indigenous Americans Discovered Europe. Caroline let us know that her publisher, Knopf, is offering a free copy of her book to any Indigenous community library, friendship centre or similar organisation. Follow the links on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, to find out how to receive yours. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast. If you like the episode you just heard, check out our podcast feed's vast archive, where you can find more than 300 of our past episodes. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Web producer, Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.